And eschatologically, there are only two possibilities. Heaven and hell. All right, I want to move through a lot of material today, and it's going to take uh, some good cooperation on your part in flipping from page to page as I move along. Let me just pick up where I left off yesterday with regard to mind renewers. Romans 12, 2. Mind renewers, in this case, from prophecy. It's by the focusing of my mind on the eternal Word of God that I find myself metamorphosed, changed from glory to glory into the very image of Jesus Christ. Consequently, yesterday we tried to focus for a little bit of time on 2 Peter 3, 10 to 14, in which God does a very interesting thing, which is true of all of prophecy. He takes us out in a time capsule. He takes us way out in the future and lets us look back at the present. That's prophecy. Uh, one of the articles that I handed out to you <clears throat> was entitled, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Moon. I was preaching on 2 Peter 3, 10 to 14 in a church in Southern California when in God's providence a, an unregenerate man uh, was present in the audience because of the invitation of his daughter, who was a member of that church. And this man happened to be the architect, so to speak, of the science of remote sensing. And I was preaching on... Second uh, Peter 3.10, and using the parallel between prophecy and remote sensing. This article tells you something about remote sensing if you do not understand that. But remote sensing is simply taking photos of the earth from space, and it is done by several vehicles now. One is called ERTS, the Earth Resources Technology Satellite, a single unmanned space capsule launch 570 miles into the sky that takes pictures of the Earth every 25 seconds, each one covering an area 115 by 115 miles. Says Bechtold, who is the, uh, the key man in this, Ira Bechtold, Earth's is really serving as a mirror for the Earth. It's allowing us to see things all around ourselves which we could never have found simply by exploring here on the ground. You let that run through your head a little bit, and I think it'll say something to you. As a result of space travel, we have found out more about the Earth than we have of the Moon. By getting away from the Earth out there and looking at the Earth from a different perspective, we are able to be aware today of mineral deposits, of water deposits, of the... Uh, guiding of elk through uh, the Wallawas and all other different kinds of advantages by looking at the earth from space. That is precisely what God is doing in prophecy. He knows my problem of being taken up with the environment around me and becoming so much a part of it that I can't even rightly evaluate it. And therefore, he takes me out in a time capsule and lets me to look, allows me to look back at Earth from that perspective. And as we saw yesterday from 2 Peter 3, from that perspective, material things melt into insignificance. And the only thing that really matters from that perspective is people because people are the only things that are going to last. And that's why I have said in the other article on the explosion, 
Uh, no, it isn't either in that article. It's in the same one I was just referring to. Let me illustrate. Living in the midst of an affluent, materialistic, and self-centered society causes me to lose perspective with respect to material things. I find myself not only in, but of the world. I tend to develop misplaced values and priorities. And by the way, there's never been a greater misnomer than the point that is being made in our educational system today of values clarification. If there's anything that that science has tended not to be, it is values clarification. It, it, it ought to be called values confusion. If you want to get values clarification, you go to the scripture. You don't get it by looking at a materialistic society. They don't have the slightest idea what values are because they can't know for they don't know God. They don't know true value. Thus, God, in an act of grace, takes me for a trip in, in a time capsule and shows me all these things that are going to be destroyed. When I let this good word from God about the future sink into my thinking, it will change my investment of my resources in the present. What an idiot I would be to invest my resources in things that don't last any more than I have to. I will see to it that I invest in things that count. And therefore, I refer back to this. I, f I will find it easier to keep the good priorities Jesus set forth in Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Lay not up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up rather for yourself treasure in heaven where moth or rust do not corrupt. And I may add in where inflation doesn't break in and steal either. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You want to get your treasure? You want to get your heart in heaven? Get your treasure there. If you've got most of your treasure here, dying will be hard for you. If you've got most of your treasure there, dying will be easy for you. That's why Paul could so easily say that he really desired to die and be with the Lord, even though in the intermediate state he would be without a body until the resurrection of the body. He said, I'd still rather do that. Would you? What made him able to do that? He had more on the other side than he had here. Uh, who could really want to live in a prison cell for the rest of his life? But that came in carrying out God's commission for him. And he said, I'm willing to do it if that's what taking up my cross means here. I'm willing to do that. But I'd far rather be absent from the body and present with the Lord. Now, that leads me to the second area. One, decreasing materialism. And second, increasing mental health. These are just two of the things that are listed in your notes as benefits. And I'm going to hand out to you later another article that has 20-some benefits listed, specific statements of Scripture. I'm only trying to zero in on a couple of them. It would take the rest of the semester to really get into all of these. But turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I have quoted the passage on that little article. <coughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is a passage you could well meditate on for hours and benefit by it. I'm only going to take a couple of minutes. Uh, in the passage, which comes right after, by the way, the, uh, the passage that I often quote to you, which is my life verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. After Paul says that, then he says this, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Catch on to that phrase. We do not lose heart. Uh, in the midst of his situation, he didn't lose heart. Now, read on. He goes through, and I'll not take the time to read two through... Uh, 12 down there, he talks about what they have gone through, persecuted but not forsaken, 
We're perplexed but not in despair, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, goes through all of that. And then he says, verse 16, again, therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Now, some people today can lose mental health because of their focus. They're navel gazers. They're all the time focusing here on the body. And lo and behold, they see the body is decaying. And they get paranoid about that. Uh, I have a lot of people today asking me, uh, well, how do, you f how do you feel? I say, great. Uh, I'm fulfilling biblical prophecy every day. Uh, well, what do you mean? Well, the Word says that the outer man is decaying, and I can testify to that. My outer man is decaying. It seems like every time I turn around, I find something else wrong with it. Uh, so now I'm going to the doctor for echocardiograms to watch the, uh, the, the mitral valve malfunction. And, uh, and then he says, take these uh, diuretic pills that'll take the water out of your legs. You're carrying around 15 pounds too much in your legs. And, and I'm, I'm learning a whole lot about the anatomy of my body. And the basic thing I'm learning is it's going to pot. Now, should I be surprised by that? Do I expect it to last for eternity? It has served me well. But I can testify to something else. And that is while my outer man is decaying, my inner man is being renewed day by day. And that's what really counts because that's going to last for eternity. But I've got to get my perspective right. We've got so many body conscious people today and I'm for being body conscious. I work over these diets and try to get the junk out, stop from poisoning myself with various things. I tell my wife, honey, it takes a full-time wife just to keep from killing her husband at the table. Uh, uh, you, you really got a task. And I work at that. I take that seriously. I'm a steward of my body. But don't focus on your body. Because your body, this body is going to decay unless by God's good grace we get raptured before that time. But it's going to decay. But my inner man doesn't have to decay. My inner man can keep getting more like the person of Jesus Christ every day. And even through the ragged fragments of my body, that will shine through. Uh, the beauty of Jesus Christ through you can be better every day. Uh, it doesn't have to get worse. So I'm fulfilling biblical prophecy in a certain sense. Therefore, he says, we don't lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. So from a prison cell, he could write his epistle on rejoicing. Now you tell me what sanity is there in that, unless you've got information that somebody else doesn't have. He could write on joy from a prison cell. You see, his focus wasn't on the prison cell. His focus wasn't on his decaying body. His focus wasn't on his ophthalmia, I guess that's what he had. Uh, running eye disease. Wasn't on that. He says, and then catch this. This just about blows my mind. For our light affliction, <laughs> which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. What a comparison. And again, if you've read 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 12 back here. Uh, somebody that doesn't know what the score is might think Paul's nuts when he says that. For, for read for just a moment his light affliction. What was his, quote, light affliction? Here it is. He very rarely does this, verse 23 of chapter 12. He doesn't get into this deal of boasting about what he's done, but the Corinthians were experts at it. And so Paul thought, I'll give them a run for their money. Uh, you great big spiritual Corinthians, let's see if you can match this. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. 
I mean, we read through that like we're reading poetry or something. That's reality. From the Jews, catch this, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Those 39 stripes were calculated to kill a person. Uh, those leather thongs with bits of metal and glass woven into them, when they tore across his, his back, literally opened up the flesh of his back. You ever been beaten? Forty times less one? Paul says, five times. And that was just a part of it. Three times I was beaten with rods for a little variety. Uh, once I was stoned. And you have to understand that culturally uh, to understand what he's talking about. It's not what some people have happened to them today. Uh, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, and besides the other things what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the church. Now go back to 2 Corinthians 4. My light affliction. You see, by the time you get through reading that, you don't have any affliction. You don't know what affliction is. But he says in, in 4, for our light affliction, what causes him to evaluate his affliction as light? What causes that? Well, look at it. Our light affliction is working for us. Number one, it's just for a moment. It's just for time. And that is nothing in comparison to eternity. This is just time. And furthermore, not only is it just a moment, but it's working for us. The affliction is working for me. What's it doing? It is producing for me an eternal weight of glory, manifestation. I am becoming today, Paul says, what I'm going to be in the life to come. So all of the future is focusing on the present. What I do today with what I have is the raw material out of which my position of service for him in the life to come will be made. Is this mighty heavy stuff? My affliction? That's light. In comparison to the time and to the product that it is producing. And then he gives you the clue. Verse 18, while we do not look at the things which are seen. Boy, I think that would increase mental health. We don't look at our ailments. We don't focus on those. What do we focus on? We focus on ultimate reality. This is not ultimate reality. This bag of bones one day is going to be put in a grave and it's going to go into dust, and one, one day, by God's miraculous power, he's going to resurrect a body just like the one I put in the grave, minus all the imperfections. It will be identifiable when I am with him. He says, that's what I focus on. We do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. How can I look at things not seen? Where do you find things not seen? Anybody, where do you find it? You don't know. Didi, where do you find things not seen? You don't know. Bob, where do you find things not seen? <laughs> Let me introduce you to it. Right here, this book. That's the only place in all the world where you can, with assurance, read about things not seen. That's prophecy. That which is yet to come. See, God who controls history, God who is the author of history, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, the one who started it is going to finish it. He says, I alone can tell you what's going to happen. So Paul says, I know him. I know him. And he gave me a book. He gave me a manual to operate by. And I can look ahead and I can see things not seen yet.
which are just as sure to come to pass as the things that are seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I submit to you that even in seminary, the hassles that you go through, the problems you go through, the trials you go through, will melt into insignificance. You will be able to be beaten up and tossed out and take it if you have your focus right. You will be able to starve to death if you have your focus right. But if your focus is on things around you, you won't be able to handle any of those things. That's powerful stuff. That's a mind renewer from prophecy, from the Word of God. You get hold of the subject, and you get hold of the content of it, and it'll do something far greater than satisfying your idle curiosity about filling in some of the empty spots in your eschatological time chart. There's something far greater in eschatology than identifying the Antichrist. The greatest value of prophecy is to allow me to live a godly life today because I know what's going to happen. So when it comes even to my paycheck, I will be helped in spending that paycheck if I focus on prophecy. But if I don't, I will be caught up with the problems of mental health of my age and I will be caught up with the materialism of my age, and I will become conformed to the world. The practical value of prophecy. Why study prophecy then? Reasons related to God, reasons related to the Word of God, and reasons related to the man of God. What a subject. Now, having said that, I want to talk about the cautions. Uh, before I do, do you have any questions so far, what we have said? Pretty hard to respond to that unless you're making a decision. <laughs> Can't help myself from preaching every once in a while. Yes, sir. I'm always uh, struggling with uh, with what you've just been saying as to how much to put. You know, I've got to live in this world. I'm always struggling with that. And the only thing that I have been coming up with is the amount. I guess it's the attachment that I have to the things of the, of the world, not necessarily the amount of things that I have. Because some, you know, you could give everything you have away, and some people are. Um, <clears throat> have a little bit more than others, as you know, I'm not in there, but I, I do struggle with, what do I do with the little bit that I do have? Okay, let's, uh, let's bring the focus of the word in on that now. You say, for example, I could give everything I have away, and that's a real possibility when I look at the needs, for example, in North Africa today, uh, and I see little children starving to death, and I have got plenty, I could give everything I have away. But you see, the Bible gives me a balance. What else does it say? It says that he that does not provide for his own is worse than an infidel. So if out of what God allows me to have, I don't provide for my own, then I'm not obeying God. So I need to be a balanced person in the Word of God. And there is what we would all like at this point is a nice, neat formula that would divorce us from having to think. And there are some seminars around today that'll do that for you. And I think I've spoken of those sometime before. Uh, we need to be balanced people taking all of the Word of God and having these principles so working through my mind that every time I'm thinking about those kinds of decisions, those principles are going through my head. What's really going to last? What's really going to last? 
Uh, I, my belt buckles yesterday, that's what I'm talking about. You see, the emotion of the moment uh, caught me up. And I said, Tim would like this, John would like this, Dan would like this. But more sober reflection says, they don't need another belt buckle. How many belt buckles do you need to hold up a pair of pants? It's common sense. And we have got stuff stacked up in our closets that we never use. Uh, or I go down past the men's clothier and I see that handsome suit in there. I think, I really need another suit. My profession demands it. How many suits can you wear at once? How many do you need to have while the other one is at the cleaners? See? How many pair of shoes do I need? And do I really need the $125 ones, or will the 30 ones do all right? Do I have to go Nordstrom or Pennies? No uh, commercial there. I've got to think. I like what John MacArthur said on one occasion. He said, I never buy anything the first time I go down here. I go back and reflect on it. I'll lose some good deals that way, but I'll save a whole lot more. And generally, anything you can buy, you can get on sale someplace. If I'm really concerned about it. By the way, I just, just got a note yesterday from a friend of mine who's Vice President of Liberty Baptist College, Sumner Wimp. And a, a, um, a clothier owned by Jim Tatum down in, uh, in Jacksonville, Florida, is a man who has a real heart for missionaries. So he lets missionaries come into his warehouse and pick up suits for $250 suits for $50 uh, uh, other things for $10 and so on and so forth. And he told me he's going to, he, he asked him if he wouldn't do that for us. He offered to do it for them. And he said, would you do it for them out there? He said, yeah, I'll send you the information. Uh, so you can be thinking about that. But there are things like that whereby we can save money. Now, why do I want to save money? Because money is raw material. It's resource that I can do something with. Now, I've got to spend some of it to eat. But what do I have to eat? You see? I may even want to ask myself, well, I need to get protein for my body. Do I need to get it out of prime rib, or can I get it out of whole wheat cereal? One is a whole lot more costly than the other. See, all the way through my life, it, it isn't a simple formula that I can get. But it's having this material going through my mind so much that as I walk through life, I am aware constantly of my responsibilities, my privileges as a child of God to use what I have as a good steward. Uh, it'd be nice if you could have a formula, but a formula won't make you think. A formula only allows you to check the spaces. Principles make you think, and they're very individualized. So I can't lay it down for you, and you can't lay it down for me, but every one of us can take Matthew 6, 19 to 21, and we can have it running through our mind. That was a mind renewer that Jesus gave. Don't lay up treasure for yourself on earth. Don't lay up treasure for yourself on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt, where thieves don't break through and steal. And then he gives you the big principle, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Do you want to long for heaven? Get your treasure there. One of Spurgeon's members took him to see his lovely palatial home. And Spurgeon went from room to room. He looked at the beautiful Persian carpets, the tapestries, the mosaics, the paintings on the walls. Nothing but money, money, money. And beautiful. Well done. In the bathroom, gold mosaic in the bathtub. Uh, went outside of the house, swimming pool, all like that. And finally the owner said to Dr. Spurgeon, Well, pastor, what do you think of it? And he said, What does a pastor say at that point? He did not want to deny the beauty of it. And he didn't want to totally wipe out his parishioner. And so he simply said these words. These are the kind of things that make dying hard. Boy, that's insightful. Every material thing, every earthy thing is like a nail being driven through my body that attaches me to the earth. And you get enough of those through you, and it's only going to be the omnipotence of God that will ever extricate you from it. 
it's a lot better to hold things loosely. I think that was the, that's the epitome of Christian virtue, Acts chapter 3. They did not consider anything they had was their own. What does our society say? My, 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 my. What's Paul say the epitome of Christian virtue is? They did not consider that anything they had was their own. But they held everything koinonia. They considered that what I have, I have in stewardship. And I want to spend it wisely. I need to use some for myself. I need to use some for my family. I need to use some for my church. I need to distribute it. How will I know how to distribute it? You won't know how to distribute it from the world system. Now, I'm going to stop pretty quick on this, but, but uh, yeah, I get going on it, and it really gets my blood moving. Do you remember not long ago when 5,000 people gathered in a Philadelphia mall to buy... 35 Cabbage Patch Dolls. There's a nation gone crazy. And one of the men man that couldn't get one was so disenchanted by not being able to get a Cabbage Patch Doll for his daughter that he hopped a Concord to London and bought one in London and came back with it. Oh, he can be grateful that God is patient. For God loves the people in North Africa as much as he does the people in Philadelphia. And when his resources are so manhandled like that, it can only take infinite patience that can keep him from utterly blotting out that man. And then when they couldn't get Cabbage Patch dolls, it was Care Bears. Everybody's got to have a Care Bear. And what America really needs is one more Care Bear. We better start thinking. The resources are ours in trust. Prophecy will help me in that. It'll help to decrease materialism. It'll help to increase mental health. I'll be able to live above it if I can get my head screwed around right. Well, lest I get wrapped up in that again, let me move. The last thing I want to say on this uh, introduction and the practical value of prophecy is proceed with caution. Because today there are a lot of people that have gotten involved in this, and frankly, we have got some real religious nuts running loose. And so in your notes, you have uh, four areas of caution. And I want to begin with beware of inordinate curiosity. That is, curiosity that goes beyond reasonableness. Prophecy was not given simply to fill my mind and its endless curiosity with details that I don't need to know. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus made some statements that protected his disciples against two things that were current in his day and are still current today. One of them had to do with the time of his coming. And he very, very specifically said, it is not for you to know. It is not for you to know. The day, the hour, which the Lord has put in his own authority and power. You would think that would be clear. But you constantly have people who will at least give the service of quoting that verse respond by saying, but. I've got a friend in Southern California who calls that the motorboat problem. The but, 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 but problem. 
I know that it says not to set dates, but, 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 it says don't set dates, period, no but. Dr. Barnhouse, many years ago, this must be at least 35 years ago that he wrote this uh, editorial in Eternity, and he cautioned against two pitfalls. One, setting the dates for the Lord's return. And two, the identification of the Antichrist. And boy, we work both of those over again and again and again. Uh, August the 8th, 1981. Full page in the Boston Globe. Awaiting heaven's call. Rapturists are certain they'll ascend by Saturday. I have... Uh, made a collage of some of these articles. Uh, the sect believes this terror won't end until Christ again returns to earth to conquer the devil and his ruling powers. This event is set to occur on May the 14th, 1988. And therefore, because that's in 88, the other is seven years before that, therefore they've got August the 8th, 1981, according to their figuring, uh, when the rapture would take place. Uh, it didn't happen then, and so they had some adjustment figures that had to take place. The head rapturist originally cast the end event for June 28th, the day his followers met and waited at his house, ready to greet the Lord, patiently, meekly, expectantly, but nothing happened. They waited longer, sat in their chairs, found themselves embarrassed to be alive. They sang hymns, they, sa they read scriptures, a group of reporters and photographers stood by impatiently, still nothing happened. Undaunted, Maupin announced a few days later he had erred concerning the time spent in, Noah, in, in uh, the Noah spent in his ark a biblical event that has much to do with the earth now and the occurrence of which helped trigger the date of the upcoming rapture. And so he refigured his date and uh, got into August, and then August didn't happen, and you didn't hear of them anymore. But some people were led by this kook into error. Will the world end in 1984? The JWs say so, or they said so. They also said so in 1889, in 1914, in 1918, in 1922, in 1925, and unfortunately with God's truth. Author says Millennium will begin in May 1990. This is a uh, electronics fellow who got in it from his end of things. He's got that figured out. Another one from uh, Demography says uh, we'll be squeezed to death by 2026. Uh, Stephen Board in... Uh, his editorial for eternity says a sense of history can help us here if we will listen note that all previous predictions of the second coming have been wrong they missed in now here are specific times that were given AD 179 650 1000 1044 1065 1182 1260 1297 1300 1694 1843 1844 1911 1933 1968 Guess disgusting, doesn't it? When you realize that it's God's truth that's being manhandled by people. God doesn't take lightly to that. Uh, recently, a, uh, a series of eschatological works were reviewed by Ward Gask of Regent College under the title Future Fact and Future Fiction. And he says, uh, in talking with the author of uh, The Late Great Planet Earth, uh, Lindsay does not assign it a day and an hour, but I asked him whether his projections in The Late Great Planet Earth were on target. If they were, shouldn't the, drama, shouldn't the curtain have gone up on the final act in God's drama by now? You can't know the day and the hour, but you can know the generation, Lindsay replied. 
Matthew 24, 34 teaches that this generation means the generation in which it first begins to be recognized that we're living in the last days. The generation which sees uh, Israel, the fig tree of verse 32, back in the land of Palestine. This is the chief sign and sees all the other signs of Matthew 24 being fulfilled. Uh, false Christ, wars such as the world has never seen before, famines over the whole earth, a growing frequency of earthquakes, worldwide apostasy, and so forth. I don't know how long a biblical generation is, perhaps somewhere between 60 and 80 years. It's interesting that in a former book, he knew how long it was. You see? But that didn't work out, did it? And I sat with that author in a conference, and I had refused to be on the conference platform with him because of this kind of stuff. And we sat down and I said, you have no right to say we are in the last generation. You have a right to say we may be in the last generation, but you have no right to say we are in it. And yet in the conference platform when we were together, he said, we are in the last generation. We may be 12 or 13 years off, but we're in the last generation. We're already past that 12 or 13 years now. That is huckstering the Word of God. You say, well, I've seen people have been saved by that. Yes, and I know God talked through a donkey in the Old Testament too. Uh, we do not copy error just because God was pleased to do something good out of it. We studiously require of ourselves to be true to the Word of God. Go back and make a study of generation. Look at genos and realize that it can mean race, tribe, kind, people far more than it means a period of time. Surely it relates to a period of time. But what he was saying was those Jews would not cease until God got through with his purpose for them. You can't exterminate them. And that's certainly true. And that generation which sees what happens in Matthew 24, 15 and following, that one that sees that will see in God's chronology the coming of Jesus Christ. We've got all of this stuff on the signs of the times. And then you get some guys that, like this one, that uh, uh, Doug Clark, who testifies in print, in, in print. I was a pre-trib until two and a half years ago when I changed definitely to the post-tribulation position. I really felt it in my heart as led by the Holy Spirit. I teach it everywhere now. Glad you are the same. Many are changing. The fellow he is uh, relating to is McKeever from Medford, Oregon, down here, who is saying you will go through the tribulation. What was Doug Clark doing before? He was telling us when Jesus Christ would come. And uh, promoting a book in Southern California, uh, signs, of the, signs of His Coming, Let's All Get Excited. Jesus Will Come in 1976. That was a great seller before September of 1976, but it wasn't worth much after that. You see, think. Think. He changes his doctrinal position. He's never studied the thing. An article called The Signs of the Times. This article was written by one of the finest preachers in New York. I am Haldeman for many years, pastor of uh, First Baptist Church of New York. He writes on Matthew 16:3, The Signs of the Times. Goes through, lists the prophecies that are being fulfilled today talks about wars that are increasing, speed up of traffic that is happening, diseases and famine that are happening, etc., etc. And on the basis of these things, Jesus Christ must come today. That was 1890. Good man. Good man. I have a book here. Is the Antichrist at hand? Uh, won't tell you the author. The author is still living. Good man. Great man. God has used him mightily. Is the Antichrist at hand? Listen to a statement that he makes in his book on page 25. No. Page 19. I won't go through his dating process. Here we are now living in the period between these two dates. If our chronology is correct, it means that all these things, including the Great Tribulation, the revival of the Roman Empire, the reign of the Antichrist, and the Battle of Armageddon must take place before the year 1933. He'd love to have this book. Think. He changed his position, by the way, too, from a pre-trib to a post-trib.
At this point, I'm not even trying to enter into the pre-trib, post-trib issue, but that is no basis for it. When you start by setting dates for the coming of the Lord, which you have no business doing, and then change your theology when it doesn't happen, that's incredible. Or the other thing Barnhouse warns us about is uh, identifying the Antichrist. And boy, the world has a lot of fun with this as they look at fundamentalists because we have identified just about everybody in creation. I mean, Mussolini had it, Hitler had it, Stalin had it, Khrushchev had it, uh, Kissinger has had it, Kennedy had it. You can figure it out for anybody. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I just happen to have some startling information to announce at this point. Earl D. Rodmacher, 666. Some of our computer experts were working on this. And they said in a lighter moment the other night at Lindgren's, we decided to extend such a numerical procedure to see how some of the seminary family came out. So we started with you. And the most amazing conclusion was reached. It is as follows. You see it on the screen. Becomes nonsensical, doesn't it? Be careful of inordinate curiosity. Here's a brand new article, 666, in Discovery Magazine. You've got it in the materials I handed out to you. Read it through and weep. As the world once again pokes its finger at the church and says, Idiots! You see, think, think, think. Be credible. On the other hand, don't be unaware of what is happening in our time. Watch the time. See what is happening. Be sensitive, because the time of our deliverance is, deliverance is closer now than it was before. And things are happening that are very significant. I hope you'll have the time to read through a series of several articles that I put into your, into your hands. Back in 1966, I pulled this article out of Credit World magazine, Banking's Role in a Cashless Society. The way we use money, originally they bartered horses and goats, and you worked out an arrangement. Then we went to precious metals, and we went to paper currency. And we went to checks. Then we went to credit cards. Now what? This article, done by the secular world, is talking about a kind of a MasterCard that would be somehow tied into a world computer in which transactions would be done in nanoseconds. But the great problem would be counterfeit of that card because your whole history is on that. Your... Uh, your medical history, your financial history, everything about you is on this microfiche card. And so they said, what could we do to protect it in case you lost it? Because if you lost it, you wouldn't be able to buy or sell. Cash will not be used. So they suggested, they suggested filming it, photographing it on the palm of one's hand or on his forehead so that when you come into the store, you can stand in front of that machine, you have your thing you want to buy, you give it to them, you stand in front of that, you immediately get a word that you don't have any money in the bank or that you do and they deduct it. And I read that thing and I thought, good grief. Uh, that's all that's needed to answer the problem of Revelation. Those who do not have the mark of the beast will not be able to buy or sell. And so forth. If there, therefore, if you're not registered, if you don't have a number, if you're not in a computer, you can't buy. And those that won't take the mark of the beast won't be in the computer, and you won't be able to buy. And the only way you'll be able to live is somebody else who has resources is going to give them to you clandestinely. Well, since that time, there have been a number of articles that have come out, and I've shared several of those with you who have gotten on the idea of uh, the, the cashless society. There are things that are, happen are happening. Take a couple more minutes. Beware of undue certainty. Beware of cowardice. Let me just probe your mind with this. Why do we hear so little on this subject? Hell.
We have all kinds of prophetic messages on the common market, on the king of the north, the king of the south, the kings of the east, the Antichrist, sermon after sermon on prophecy conferences and that. How long has it been since you heard a message on hell that gripped you? You see, that's why John Braun wrote his book, Whatever Happened to Hell? Out of all the things we don't know about the future, there's one thing we sure do know. There are only two destinies. And everybody sitting in this room is going to be in one of those places. I hope, I hope we're all in heaven by the grace of God. But we better warn people about this. One of the most effective sermons that Jerry Larson ever preached at First Baptist Church of Milwaukee was a sermon on hell on Easter Sunday. He figured there are going to be more unregenerate people in church on Easter Sunday than any other time of the year. And if there's one sermon they need to hear, it's not on heaven. It's on hell. Because if they escape hell, they'll be in heaven. We better be sure that they escape hell and know how to do that. You don't hear much about that. So I would say, beware of cowardice. Beware of failing to say the things that are clearly stated prophetically in the Word of God. And then finally, beware of complacency. Jesus Christ said, in as simple a language as you can put it, I will come again. Said to Peter when he was at the pit of despair, Peter, don't be shaken from your moorings. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. What a hope! Uh, when I die, or when I am raptured, in either case, to be absent from this place is to be present with Jesus Christ. That message ought to ring through our messages again and again and again. It ought to permeate our ministry. Jesus is coming. Jesus is alive. Jesus is coming. Speak it. Speak it. Pray it. Teach it. Don't be complacent about the truths that we have that millions know nothing about. Uh, the practical value of prophecy. Thank you for giving me some extra time.